In the last three or four weeks, Emily and I have shared messages about the mission of our church, which is to make more and better disciples who transform their community and resource the greater church. That's what we're all about. So we've broken that down into a series of initiatives. Emily began three weeks ago by saying we have to become a more innovative culture. We have to be open to change. Some of you are still waiting for that major announcement. Then I came up last uh, a couple weeks ago and I talked about starting a discipleship movement and out of that, I think I shared with you four or five different levels of discipleship. And then I've had several conversations with several of you over the last two weeks and you and I were talking about different people that we know and, and, and so I thought it might be a nice thing for us to like make a nice, colorful, beautiful picture uh, of what I was talking about. I have a copy of it here called How People Grow. This is a, like a taxonomy of discipleship. Now, I understand some of you are all into taxonomies, and most of you are like, what the heck's the taxonomy? This is simply a stage-by-stage -stage process of how people tend to mature in faith. It's not the final answer, but it's my answer. And I've found in many different conversations lots of important feedback. Here's how you might use it. Uh, you might take a copy of this home and look at it and just say, where am I in the growth process? I do that with myself repeatedly. And then look at the people that you're traveling with, the friends that you meet with every week, and ask yourself, where are they? Now, I know you're afraid of judging one another, but understand, that's not your heart. Your heart is to try and plot about where people are so you can think about what is the next stage. And then finally, if you have uh, ideas that you'd like to talk to me about, uh, maybe a better way to say this, and some of you surely have it, you're much better at this kind of thing than I am, then I'd encourage your feedback either with a phone call or an email or something. But these are available for you at the information desk. I want you to go out of your way to get a copy. You don't want to just hand them out so you can shove it in your Bible next to bulletins. I found a bulletin two weeks ago from 2008. Think about that. Don't want that to happen to this. Person took notes on the sermon <laughs> and then left it here. <laughs> All right. How many of you uh, in the room right now, we have about 150 online right now. How many of you uh, have, uh, have never been a pastor uh, in your life? May I see your hand? That's most of us. How many of you have, do not have any formal training in theology. May I, I mean, you didn't sit through theology classes. May I, no, get them up high. Don't be ashamed. Be proud. Just, all right, perfect, perfect. And how many of you, to the best of your knowledge, uh, at least on this day, do not foresee yourself as becoming a full-time pastor sometime between now and the time you're all, well, let me ask for it anyway, people. You're like, oh, you went Pentecostal. Some of you all did. So you do not see yourself at any time. Now, God can do anything. Don't tell him. But you do not see yourself doing this sometime between now and the time you die again. May I see your hand? In Pentecostal fashion, well, that's most of you. That's who the message today is for. 
That's who the message today is for. One of the initiatives in our church this year or the next few is to create an off-site presence with people who are not formally trained in theology, people who are not full-time pastors and who do not see themselves as someday being a full-time pastor. Purpose of the message today is to say the future belongs to you. Start at the beginning and get quickly to the end. One of the signature cathedrals in England is the Manchester Cathedral. If you were to walk by it, it would look something like this. The signature building or the signature part of it that began in the 1400s took 450 years to build this sucker. Wait, it's a cathedral. I mean church. But the signature parts, the West Tower, was built uh, almost immediately, but it's gone through several renovations. Uh, and so in the, about, uh, about 20 years ago, they started to notice the stone at the top of the tower was starting to scale up and grow vegetation, and the mortar was starting to crumble. And so they surrounded it with scaffolds in order to descale the tower, in order to get the vegetation out of it and to strengthen up the stone, do new stonework. The two pictures of the tower in the scaffolds has become for me something of a parable in the church. Now let me get right to the end. It is the nature of organizations to build up structures around things. And after a while, they cannot tell the difference between the tower and the scaffold. There is something that God does, and then there is something that humans do almost immediately around what God does. It's called organization. And when humans get around something God is doing with organization, it is done with good intentions. The purpose of organization is to make something stable, to make it sustainable, to nurture it, to protect it, to restore it. So it will last a long time. But over time, it is hard for that organization to detach itself from its own structures. Let me put it bluntly. Organizations by nature tend to cling to things that are irrelevant and obsolete. Things that should have worked, but they didn't. Or things that once worked, but they don't work any longer. Now, no one intends for this to happen. It happens whenever we build scaffolding around the tower in order to strengthen it and grow it and then sustain it. This is the challenge in the church. And then there comes an Antioch moment. An Antioch moment is the convergence of three things. One, it's 
that moment when an organization first discovers that the landscape is changing. Sometimes it's a signature event and sometimes it's a slow, steady creep. But there is a day when an organization or a church wakes up and realizes that the cultural landscape is changing and due to forces beyond our control. Number two, they realize on that day that God is still active somewhere else. In places and with people that are mostly unfamiliar to us. Which leads to the third There is a moment wherein that church or that organization must decide what is our place in this? What should we do? Our landscape is changing here. God is doing something over there. Do we just cut it off and say, let it do whatever it wants and continue to build the mothership or... Do we try to bring what God is doing over there under what God has done here? Or do we just feed it, nurture it, empower it, and then release it to take whatever form it wants? And if we do that, how much of ourselves do we give it? We have to sit down and say, how much of the scaffolding that we've built up around our church, how much of that is transferable and how much is just us? What assumptions, what methods, what outcomes, what assessments do we transfer and what is just ours? And the longer that we have been in something, listen to this, the more essential every part of it seems to us. So that if we let something go, we always feel like we're losing something essential. So we have to know what is tower and what is only scaffolding. First time the church had this problem was in Antioch. Let me give you a quick, really quick backstory. Jesus prophesied one day that he would build his church. And about three years later, he did exactly what he said he would do. While the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews, they waited 10 days And the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples in a way like the world had never seen. There were like pillars of fire. I'm not making this up. Over the heads of every one of these apostles. And there was a really strong wind that just right through the place. And the moment that happened... They started to speak in different languages, which was ingenious because it was Jerusalem and people had gathered from different languages all over the world and they were there. So how perfect of a moment. 
From that hour, they began to prophesy and they began to heal. And Acts tells us the city of Jerusalem was in awe of these things. It says that the grace of God was on the apostles with unusual power. But almost immediately, they began to attach it to the scaffolding. Because Pentecost was not just a Christian event. It came out of the Jewish history. If you read Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he clearly says this was prophesied by Joel. He belongs to us. Later he says David himself prophesied of these things. <laughs> He belongs to us. This Jesus whom you crucified was crucified at Passover. It's one of our days. And this thing we call Pentecost happened on the festival of weeks. Y'all didn't think of that. That's one of ours. I mean, so you hear that from the beginning the early followers of Jesus were attaching this new movement to this rich and storied Jewish tradition. They didn't know was over the years that tradition would start to grow up like scaffolding around what God was doing. So when God went to do something new, they almost couldn't distance themselves from it. And then, as I said, right while the church, the new Jesus movement in Jerusalem, the holy city for all Jews, was starting to grow, there came an Antioch moment. Watch it. First, there was something that changed the cultural landscape. Acts chapter 8 says the persecution broke out on the day Stephen was stoned. And on the day Stephen was stoned, all of the Christians in Jerusalem went home and gathered their stuff and they started running helter-skelter out of Jerusalem because the police guard was coming and arresting people and throwing people in prison for being a follower of Jesus. So it says in Acts chapter 8, Everybody except the apostles grabbed their stuff and ran like fury to get out of Jerusalem. There, the cultural landscape has just changed. But when they went, they started preaching the gospel in other cities. And one of those cities was Antioch. And when people heard the gospel in Antioch, they started coming to Jesus. Lots of them. There, God is on the move in other places and in other ways that are unfamiliar to us. And so Jerusalem hears about this and they have a decision to make. We got to send a posse 
That's not the word, actually, but that's what they sent, was a posse of people into Antioch to check out what God was doing, to make sure that it was right, to make sure that it was legitimate. They sent Barnabas. It was brilliant because he was an encourager. Send the wrong guy at a moment like that, and you'll kill it. (laughs) Don't send a curmudgeon. Don't, no, I won't go there. They sent Barnabas. He's an encourager. When he gets to Antioch, he sees the work that God is doing. He realizes immediately that something is happening that nobody can control. So the first thing Barnabas does is to say, there is genuine new faith here. It is legitimate, but it is fragile. It is not stable. We must tie it to deep Christian roots. Who will I get? Wait. I know who it is. Paul. Dude's a genius. I'll bring him in with all of his PowerPoint slides. And no, that's not what he does. He brings Paul. He travels a hundred miles, mostly by boat, to find Paul. And when he finds him, he brings him back to Antioch. And he says, There is genuine life happening here, but I'm afraid. Can you help me teach it? And they spend a year tying it to the deep Christian roots. But Jerusalem is still wondering what to do with Antioch. Because these Christians who are coming to Jesus, hmm, they don't speak Hebrew, they don't go to the synagogue. They don't read the Torah. They don't even know what the Torah is. They're not circumcised. They don't know anything about religious festivals. They don't do anything like the stuff we're doing in Jerusalem. How can something be genuine when none of the behaviors are there? This is a moment. So they have a conference. It's what churches do. When in doubt, call a meeting. So they called a meeting in Acts 15. And here was the question. How much of what God did in Jerusalem is the tower and how much is the scaffold? How much of it can we transplant into this new movement and how much of it should we keep to ourselves? God has done something in Antioch, wait for it, and all of the apostles are still back in Jerusalem. These people in Antioch don't even know any apostles. They don't know anybody who's ordained. Anybody who's had formal training in theology. Nobody who thinks one day when they arrive, they'll be a pastor. And yet the funny thing is, that is where God is on the move. So they have their meeting. They argue their case. 
And finally, James, a brother of Jesus. Note to self, who is deeply entrenched in the Jerusalem tradition. James says, we ought to write him a letter. This is what it ought to say. People of Antioch, we acknowledge the work that God is doing in your midst. It is genuine. It is beyond our control. You're asking what you must do to be part of this deep historic Christian faith. We can think of two things. One, abstain from any form of idolatry. And two, abstain from sexual immorality. The letter just ends by saying, you would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's a quote. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. What a gracious, generous act of empowerment. Suddenly, church, it looks like there are two churches instead of one. Let me contrast them one more time. Jerusalem gathers, Antioch sends. Jerusalem attracts people from the margins into a new community where they can belong. Antioch scatters people almost as quickly as they come. Jerusalem is a family camp. Antioch is a base camp. In Jerusalem, the church is like an organ in the body. It's the heart or the lung. But in Antioch, the church is like a virus. It works best when it doesn't gather. It goes everywhere else. In Jerusalem, the church is a collection of shared beliefs and practices. But in Antioch, the church is an idea that has been released into every culture. In Antioch, the church is the yeast, not the bread pan. It causes whatever culture it enters to rise to its potential, but it does not shape that culture in any one particular way. That's what Jerusalem does. Here's where I'm going with this. I think, church, we live in an Antioch moment. I think the church in America is in an Antioch moment. There have been signature events. We could list them, but that would bore you. Most of you are at least aware of a steady creeping effect of secularism around the country where it seems a little thicker maybe than it did 20, 30 years ago. Can we at least agree to that? Yeah? Thank you. So the cultural landscape is changing, not what it was, due to forces beyond our control. But second, God is on the move somewhere else. He is moving in communities all around America, even in the city of Marion. Just because people in Marion are not in church, doesn't mean they're not attracted to faith. It just means they're not attracted to the scaffolding. They still want to tower. 
But we can't confuse disinterest in the scaffolding with disinterest in the tower. It is not the same thing. When the man tells me two nights ago at the theater, I've been praying a lot lately. He's religious. I have any idea what religion he is. He may not know what religion he is, but we can't confuse that with someone. This, this is happening all over. But the tendency of people who live in Jerusalem, who grew up with traditions, is to look at the movement of God and say, well, unless they use these words and they act this way and they make, then they're not interested. No, that's Jerusalem talking. That's Jerusalem talking. God is on the move. So we have to make a decision. What part do we want to be in that? So I called our church. I'm going to sit down. Have a come to Jesus with you. I called our church six months ago to follow where we think God is going by becoming an off-site presence. Let me tell you what I think this means. The future of the church does not lie in the apostles in Jerusalem. It lies in the laity. So if you've been wondering what part you have in the future of the church, here's a short answer. All of it. In fact, there is no such thing as laity. There never was. What this means is that in the church, we are going to have to find ways to commission and authenticate laity as they rise into key positions around the city. And it means that the laity in the city, you who are already in key positions, have to start thinking about what you would do to shape the place that you're in with the gospel. You don't have to wait for the apostles to show up in your Antioch to figure this out. You are the future of that place. Third, we're going to have to find non-traditional ways of training laity, but not in seminaries. Who have all been designed by, taught by, led by apostles. We will have to invent ways to design things that are led by and taught by non-clergy. And targeting non-clergy environments. We will need churches who go out and aggressively plant the gospel wherever they go. The closest that we've come to this so far, you guys, is the church planting movement. And I think that's going to help us. At least it's going to help us stay relevant 
a little bit longer. But there's a couple of problems with the church planning movement. One is that the challenge in America today is not that we don't have interesting enough churches, but that we don't have interesting enough Christians. We don't have Christians who are being produced, not enough of us who live countercultural lives, who genuinely love and pray for our enemies, who give up our funds to other causes, who, who plan on dying without a lot of assets, and not because we've given them all to our children, but because we have empowered things we believe God is in. It needs a layer of people that keep their promises for 50 and 60 years, that live pure, pious lives, that let go of grudges, that die well. Until a church is producing that kind of a disciple. Please don't plan anymore. We got enough. Sorry for the passion, you guys. The other problem is, why on earth would you plant more of the thing that is losing social capital? If churches, formally speaking, are being moved to the margins, why on earth would you plant a few more? Would it not be wiser to infuse the movement that God is on with a few seeds and let it take whatever form it wants and not control it? Let it go. Say, well, what does this mean to us? Every one of us in the room right now is an off-site presence because you belong to us. So we'll have to let go of this American bias that thinks if something can't be done on a large and impressive grand scale, then it really isn't worth doing. Yes, it is worth doing. Movements began when a couple of individuals go to Antioch and they start sharing their faith. Nobody goes into Antioch and says, I got an idea, Paul, let's plant a church. They went into Antioch and they started sharing their faith and God created a movement. So it starts when individuals just live exemplary lives. An hour from now, when you're in a restaurant, tip the waitress. Say nice things. There's a reason the baristas in Starbucks dread Sunday mornings. There's a reason. When you go to see the teacher about your child this week, be nice. When you drive, hmm. <laughs> when you check out, when you disagree, when you post 
stuff on Facebook about opinions you don't agree with. Soft answer turneth away wrath. Come on, church. It begins when we live exemplary Christian lives. Who knows what God will do if we just do that? Second, would you help us? Some of you in the congregation right now, I believe, are already positioned in key places. Would you help us at College Church to identify who the people and the places are where God is on the move? I promise you, we'll stay out of it. but we'll feed it. Here's a way to think of it. There is no other gathering in Grant County right now that meets this regular with this many community leaders and this kind of intellectual capacity than is in the room right now. Think about that. What could you do with that in the place where God is calling you? Don't think about what the church should be doing. Think about what you could do yourself with the church if you had this kind of collective energy and firepower behind you. Literally, in this room, you're one degree from just about, nope, everybody in the state. You are. What could you do if you had that? Then go to the idea page that Emily talked about last week and write it in there or call up one of the staff members and say, I got an idea. Last. Um, When you go to work tomorrow, would you help by practicing the claims of the gospel in the place where you work. Does not matter if it's in a factory or a doctor's office or a locker room, living room, boardroom, hospital room, doesn't matter where it is. The gospel says things into those places. Would you go thinking, what does the gospel say? Few, few things. One, you will not have to introduce that place to Jesus. He's already there. You'll have to find him, but he's already there. Two, when you find him, you must not make it hard for people who are turning to God. Get stuff out of the way. Don't put a bunch of, get stuff out of the way. Three, plant the gospel not an organization or a movement. Just plant the gospel and let it grow. And four, be patient. Be patient. What you'll notice is that God will do less than you expect in the first three years. But then after that, he'll do more than you expect. But you gotta put in those first three years.